The following podcast is going to contain spoilers along with unfettered feelings of nostalgia. Proceed at your own risk. folks wash the dog and slop the hog it's time for event or else the comic book show where i go through most every major marvel and dc event one issue at a time one episode at a time because honestly the heart wants what the heart wants you know what i'm saying you know i'm your host my name is steven and i'm sitting here on this side of the microphone asking you to check your life jackets as we set sail once again on the sea that is crisis on infinite earths This week, we're looking at issue number three, and it's entitled Oblivion Upon Us. This issue was published by DC Comics in June of 1985, and it was written by Marv Wolfman with pencils by George Perez, inks by Dick Giordano, letters by John Costanza, and the colors were by Tony Tallon. Our story opens on the Monitor satellite, somewhere between all time and space. The Monitor is running tests on young Alexander Luther, the son of Lex Luther and Lois Lane of Earth-3. The boy, proclaims the Monitor, is quite remarkable. Not only has he aged from infancy to adolescence in just a few days, he also has both positive and negative matter existing together within him, and he looks pretty weird because of it. Harbinger approaches and attempts to get the Monitor's attention, but he either doesn't hear or he's just straight up ignoring her. Either way, she leaves, worried now that he may suspect that she is working for the enemy. Speaking of which, after Harbinger leaves the Monitor, she goes immediately to report to the enemy, telling him that she has news of the Monitor. The enemy, however, whom we only see in shadow, basically tells her, look girl, There ain't nothing you can tell me about the Monitor that I don't already know. In fact, I know it as soon as he thinks it. But still, since you're here, go back and kill that weird-looking Luther kid so he don't do nothing down the line that might mess up my plans. I am, of course, paraphrasing. She hears and obeys, taking off and leaving the enemy alone with Psycho Pirate. Double P, for that's what I'm going to call Psycho Pirate, worries over Harbinger, telling his master that she's unstable and asks that the big man might allow him to instill a bit of blind loyalty in her. But no, the enemy doesn't want that. He knows she's going to do what he requires. Heck, before long, she's even going to kill the monitor. And here's the thing, that alone is good enough for the enemy to keep her breathing and all that. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Cut to the future on Earth-1 where the Flash is running in the rain and he's anything but happy about it. He's been living in the future now for a month. A month of happiness and a month of hope. But suddenly, things are starting to go a bit pear-shaped. The weather has gone crazy, there's volcanic activity in the middle of Central City, and then, just when the Flash thought it couldn't get any worse, the antimatter wave appears and begins to annihilate Earth-1 and its surrounding universe. All he can think to do is to vibrate at the proper frequency and escape into time. Meanwhile, in the present on Earth-1, July 1985, the very same antimatter wave just keeps trundling on through all timelines at once. Both the Teen Titans and the Outsiders are on hand 
to try and stem the tide, or at least attempt to save as many people as they can. Batman and Superman quickly arrive on the scene, but there really isn't much they can do against the antimatter. The Flash, traveling back through time from the future, materializes before them, bringing with him news of all the crap going down in the future, which is all the same crap that's going down in the present, but the Flash is just a little too far into panic mode to notice. But before the Flash can materialize fully, something goes wrong. He's suddenly trapped within the energy that's surrounding him. Batman realizes that if he doesn't do something to save the Flash, that this will lead to the Flash's apparent demise that Batman witnessed in issue two. But before he can reach out and try to pull the Flash free from the energy, Jericho of the Teen Titans and five-time winner of the Best-Looking Superhero Mutton Chops Award knows that something seriously bad is going to happen to the Cape Crusader if he touches that energy. And so he tackles Batman to the ground. The Flash, in the meantime, goes all stretchy and he vanishes as he screams for help. Meanwhile, out in space, far beyond our solar system, Brainiac, the living computer, sits in his skull-shaped spaceship and analyzes the antimatter wave that's destroying the universe. Realizing that by himself, he's not quite up to the task of figuring out a way to stop the wave, he makes for Earth to collab with Lex Luthor, the only one he feels who can help. From there, we travel back in time to the spring of 1944, where the small, fictional nation of Markovia is falling under the boot heels of the Nazi war machine. Most, if not all, of DC's World War II military characters are there to fight back. And in the middle of it all stands one of the Monitor's towering devices. Blue Beetle, Dr. Polaris, and Geoforce, a native of Markovia, have arrived to defend the tower. The Nazis, however, thinking that the tower is a weapon created by the Allies, are doing their best to take it, while the likes of Sergeant Rock and Easy Company, the Losers, and the Haunted Tank try and stop them. In the meantime, those pesky shadow creatures arrive, and the Blue Beetle, who's just been hovering above in the comfort of his bug ship, jumps into the fray, only to discover that there isn't much he can do against the shadows. He does carry the ancient mystical scarab, the power behind the original Blue Beetle, and it can destroy the shadow creatures, but they have to touch him first. And by doing so, their touch burns the crap out of him. While observing from his satellite, the Monitor sees the uselessness of the Blue Beetle and teleports him away, removing him as a member of the team. From here, we check in with Earth-2 Superman, Dawnstar, Solovar, and Commandy just long enough to watch Solovar die from the injuries he sustained in the previous issue. It was all really very sad. Cut to the Old West, Coyote, Texas, 1879, where Bat Lash is being tossed from a saloon for messing around with the proprietor's daughter. He picks himself up and dusts himself off, laughing the incident away before climbing onto his horse and heading out of town to meet up with the other DC Western heroes to check out another one of the Monitor's towering devices. With him are Nighthawk, Scalp Hunter, Jonah Hex, and Johnny Thunder. But as they're checking out the tower, the Monitor's team, Cyborg, Firebrand, Green Lantern, and Simon arrive to scare the crap out of them. 
Shadow creatures attack, and there's a bit of fighting, but then, before a victor can be declared, that pesky antimatter wall arrives and starts swallowing everything up. We jump forward in time to the 30th century to witness the legion of superheroes falling before the wave. This sucker is in all timelines, and it's killing all sorts of folks, such as Nighthawk in the Old West and Kid Psycho in the 30th century. The Monitor, doing what he does, stands in his satellite and watches as the antimatter wave destroys Earth-1. He's more than a little worried because, honestly, he wasn't expecting it all to happen so soon. He knows that he no longer has days, but just hours to do something about his enemy. But he's ready, his machines are in place, and all that's left to do is to switch them on. But before he can set his plan into motion, Harbinger arrives to kill him, establishing the cliff we're forced to hang from until next week. And with that, it's time for the top three things to dwell on. The top three things to dwell on are three moments or aspects of the book that I feel need to be given just a bit more thought. Funny or stupid, exciting or dull, it's up to me to bring them to your attention. Thing to dwell on number three, why's the boy gotta be naked? As the issue opens, the monitor is running tests and whatnot on young Alexander Luther, and the boy is straight up naked. He's in a glass bubble, he ain't got a stitch of clothing on, and the monitor's just watching him. He's running his tests, and the boy just has to sit there, naked as the day he was born, and take it. Sure, I'm willing to bet that the monitor doesn't have kids' clothing just laying around for situations like this, but come on! Throw the boy a flippin' blanket or something. Thing to dwell on number two, so long, Blue Beetle. Now, I'm a big fan of Ted Cord, Blue Beetle. To me, he's the sunny side of Batman. And for that reason alone, he will always hold a special place in my heart. So I'm sure you can understand how excited I was for the Blue Beetle to be included on the Monitor's team. And yet, here we are, just three issues in, and they've basically said he's useless, and they've sent him home. That hurts. It hurts deep down in my heart. And frankly, it's all I can do at this point to continue on with the event, knowing that they pulled a fast one on me. I mean, we learn here that the only reason the Monitor chose the Blue Beetle in the first place was due to the mystical Scarab. And yet, once he realizes that Ted can't really wield the Scarab against the shadow creatures without getting seriously hurt, he's all like, eh, made a mistake, and benches him. So long, Blue Beetle. I hope you return. Thing to dwell on number one, I have to know more about Kid Psycho. As the antimatter wave is destroying Earth-1, we see a member of the Legion of Superheroes fall before it, a character they call Kid Psycho. Now, we barely get a glimpse of the guy, but by his name alone, I had to find out more about him. So I went to a little place out there on the World Wide Web called DCFandom.com, and this is what I learned straight from the site. Nil Opral, alias Kid Psycho, hails from the planet Hajor. Before his birth, his parents were astronauts on his home planet and were charged with killing a space monster that threatened their space program. In the process, the two were exposed to radiation that caused their son Nil to be born with an abnormally large head and was gifted with mental powers. Which, you know, that's kind of a bad news, good news type of thing, really. 
Bad news, your kid's head is flipping huge. Good news, he has super awesome mental powers. Do with that as you will. The article continues, he would use his powers to aid his planet. However, when he could not prevent his planet's destruction by a wandering planet, his parents managed to send him away in a ship before his world's destruction. The sole survivor of his race, Nil attempted to join the Legion of Superheroes as Kid Psycho. However, the Legion's evaluations of Kid Psycho found that whenever he used his powers, it would take a year off of his life. As a result, the Legion would decline his membership without telling him why. Which, wow, at least tell the kid the downside to using his powers. I mean, warn the boy already. No, instead they just tell him, oh, sorry, you didn't make it. Really? Why? Why did I not make it? Uh, we're not telling you. That's a secret. It's for us to know and you to find out. Way to go, Legion of Superheroes. You guys suck. Anyway, back to the article. However, traveling to the 20th century to seek the aid of Superboy to learn the reason why his membership was rejected. That sentence makes no sense at all. Is it saying that he learned the reason why his membership was rejected while in the 20th century seeking the aid of Superboy? I think that's what it says, but we'll just have to guess. Let's move on. This would lead to the Legion reconsidering their decision and accepting Kid Psycho as a reserve member of the Legion to be used as a secret weapon when needed. After helping the Legion on a number of missions, Kid Psycho was killed while trying to protect people from the antimatter wave during the Crisis on Infinite Earths and was erased from existence by it. Now, I do apologize to all the Kid Psycho fans out there that I may offend by saying this, but dang, Kid Psycho is straight up corny. And those were the top three things to dwell on. So now we come to the part of the show where I wrap it all up and tell you how I feel about the book in general. Things are getting dark, folks. I mean, Earth One, which is the main Earth, is in the midst of being wiped out of existence during this issue. And the one guy who can stop it is about to be killed by the one person he trusted to help him save everyone. It really appears as if all hope is lost, and we're only three issues in. We still have nine issues left. I can't even imagine at this point what they have in store for us next. Beyond that, I'm still really enjoying this tour through the DC Universe. We got the World War II comics and the Western comics in this issue, which was fun, but I wish there could have been more. But obviously, they have a lot of story to tell, and the DC multiverse at this point is really quite vast. So I can't imagine them trying to get all of it in there. But just these moments from the history and the future of Earth-1 are pretty darn neat. Batman and Superman from Earth-1 get another appearance, but still, they're not really doing much. Again, they are outside of the main story and are just trying to deal with the consequences of what's going on. Which, not to beat a dead horse here, seems a bit odd based on modern DC events. And what about Wonder Woman? She's yet to make an appearance at all, and she's a third of the almighty DC trinity. And yet, nothing. Three issues in, and no Wonder Woman. It just doesn't feel right. Now, the art, as I've said before, continues to be amazing. There is just so much in this book to look at. My son, who's almost 19, used to just sit and pore over this book 
back when he was just a little guy before he'd even learned how to read. I had a copy of the trade, and he would spend great lengths of time slowly turning the pages and just swimming in all of the colorful characters. And honestly, can you blame him? But really, what more can I say about this issue? It's getting dark, folks. It's getting dark, and yet we still have nine issues left. So I guess at this point, all I can tell you is to join me back here next week for issue number four, which is entitled, And Thus shall the world die maybe bring some tissues for that one i mean i have to imagine that the world dying might be a bit of a sad affair event or else is a presentation of the just another fanboy podcast questions and comments can be directed to event or else at gmail.com you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the patreon by going to patreon.com slash steven and get instant access to the My Other Podcast podcast, a weekly show where I talk about all the nerdy type things I don't have time to talk about in all my other podcast episodes. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share the podcast with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Uh, that may go at the end of the sentence. It better. Here it is, folks. Wash the dog and slop the hog. It's time for Event or Else, the comic book show where I go, uh, I need a big breath there. Here it is, folks. <coughs> this issue was published by DC <coughs> Inks by Jick. The monitor is running tests on young Alexander. Oh, I keep running out of breath. Knowing that something seriously bad is going to happen to the Cape Crusader. Uh, I'm just running out of the breath inside my lungs. Jericho of the Teen Titans and five-time winner of the best-looking... He's worried as he wasn't expecting it all to happen so soon. Niles is just snoring up a storm over here. Niles is my dog. (laughs) That was dumb.